Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery. This episode is sponsored by PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association. PDMA is a global community of professional members whose skills, expertise, and experience power the most recognized and respected innovative companies in the world. PDMA is also the longest-running professional association for product managers, leaders, and innovators, having started in 1976. I've enjoyed being a member with them for more than a decade now and really find the network they provide and resources very valuable. Please go check them out. Learn more at pdma.org. That's pdma.org. And they invited me to their conference, which is in Orlando, Florida. Not a bad place for me right now, coming out from Colorado in the wintertime. And I'm hanging out with some of the speakers there, asking them more about the presentations. This speaker gave a keynote on the topic, Transforming Products into Experiences, Injecting the Theme Park's Industry Experience Model into Product Development. In other words, what can we learn from theme parks to help us do a better job creating products our customers love? There seems to be a most appropriate topic here that we're in the theme park world of Orlando, Florida. With us is Jeff Thatcher. Jeff is the founder and chief creative officer at Creative Principles. As an experienced creative director, he excels at leading projects from concept to reality. These projects are most often about creating world-class experiences in corporate visitor centers, museums, theme parks, and live events. As a reminder, if you want a written summary of all that we talked about, including a one-page action guide with the key takeaways that Jeff will share, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 423. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I thought it was interesting that your keynote was at the end of, I guess it's day two of the conference, right? We have this quasi-transition on Sunday and then move into really full-blow Monday and Tuesday, where I thought it should have been the keynote to kick us off, just given the theme and the connection to the land of Disney World and other theme parks here. We do need some context to just understand the work that you do and how this applies. And I want to get into the customer experience aspect of making our products better. But tell us about your work creating customer experiences. I started in this experience industry as a 14-year-old cleanup at an amusement park. I worked at the old swimming pool, not a water park. It was back in the old days when you had a big million-gallon swimming pool with diving boards and a platform and metal slides. And, and my job was to make sure the customer saw and experienced a clean pool. So I cleaned up everything from skimming the pool to balancing the chlorine and the pH and cleaning the locker rooms and the bathrooms, and the toilets. And that was my job was a cleanup boy. And, uh, and then from that, I went on to be a lifeguard, train engineer, was a manager in the rides department, worked. Probably one of my most memorable experiences was working a classic Mac Wild Mouse coaster. And this, they don't really exist anymore because they're very low capacity, but it's a great ride. You should go Google it if you want to know more about the Wild Mouse. Is it a wood? It's a wooden coaster. Okay. And you sit in it toboggan style. Okay. So you sit. Two people in front. Yeah, two people in front. And the reason why it was designed that way is the German engineer, Hans Mack, I think was his name, was Mack, was definitely the last name, to promote something he called touching without touching. Because he felt like if teenagers sat toboggan style, it would motivate the young man to then spend more money on the girl on the carnival games because he'd want to impress her. So it was a very kind of creative and ingenious. This is all historical. It's all in the historic record. But the Wild Mouse was interesting because it was very thin. And so you always felt like you're about ready to fall off the tracks. And it took very sharp, hard turns. It's a very classic design, classic coaster. And it all operated with pulleys and levers. And it was very, very fun to operate. Very operator intensive. You didn't push a button. When the wild mouse would come in, you'd actually pull a big lever back 
to lift up a piece of metal that would then slow the mouse down. And then you would literally grab the mouse and slow it down the rest of the way. And so it would drag you down the entry station. No automatic safety features. There were, but the automatic safety features. <laughs> I know you didn't want to talk about wild mouse coaster design, but the the it's the safety feature because the only thing that was mechanical on that ride was the chain that would lift the car up. Okay. So when it was time to, to send the mouse, which is the coaster car, when it was time to send that on onto the track as an operator, you would just push it. So you'd have two people in it, and, and it you would engage would, the chain. You would literally push it. So it, was, it wasn't too hard to push, but, but you still had to exert force to push it. And you just push it to where the chain was and just push it like down this hill. And, uh, and then if there was a, a need for them somewhere on the track, you would notice that a mouse would get stuck. Usually what would happen is someone's baseball cap would fall off and that baseball cap would land on the track. And then when the, the mouse behind it would hit that baseball cap, it would slow down and stop. And so the last thing you want is to have the next car, the next mouse that's coming to hit into the one that's there. So one of the operators, whoever would see it first, because you had to keep your eye on the track at all times while you were working, you would just yell at the top of your lungs, right? You'd yell, dead mouse, dead mouse, <laughs> dead mouse. And then you would run to this. Reinforcing the story. You'd run to this wall of chains. They were all color coded. And you would look at the track and you'd see where the mouse was. And then you'd grab the chain and flip it off a screw. And then that was attached to a cable that went to a pulley system. And it would then drop a weight. And that dropping of the weight would then lift up the emergency brake. Ingenious. Ingenious. Yes. Yes. Much more than we see today. Probably impossible to insure today, but ingenious and like very fun. You had an early love here for that theme park experience, it sounds like. I did. I worked 10 years at Lagoon Amusement Park in Farmington, Utah. And then had a brief flirtation with journalism for about two years and then really just missed, missed the parks, missed the experiences. And essentially, as a journalism major in college, I realized that our job creating experiences really was about telling stories. And so I was able to combine that education that I got writing and telling stories with journalism into now telling stories at theme parks, museums, and brand experiences around the world. Yeah. And I think there's stories behind every product. Right. And it just depends if it's being told well or not. Sometimes we miss it. Last night at the conference here, they sent us over to Epcot to just enjoy that experience. And I was reminded, went on a couple of the rides there, that these would be really mundane, even boring rides without the story aspect. Right. The story is what brings that ride to life and makes it more interesting and draws you in. Into it. I agree. I love a good story. And amusement parks have their place. I worked at one. That's where I got my start. But I fully support and love and embrace the evolution from amusement to theming. In yeah. fact, I was having a conversation, and, sorry, going off track here, but I was having a conversation recently about the cruise ship industry with a colleague of mine. And the cruise ship industry is essentially where the amusement park industry was before Disney. Because you go on a cruise ship and it's not really themed. It's not really, I mean, there's stuff to do. There's a water slide. There's, they now put a carnival, put a coaster on one of their ships. And so they're moving into adding more and more activities on the cruise ships. But the cruise ships themselves don't really tell a story. Right. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see if they evolve in that same direction. Yeah, you're missing cues as part of the experience. Yeah. So yeah. I know the... Like even when I'm watching a movie, the music sometimes stands out to me. Sometimes they've done a really good job supporting what's going on and the music reinforces your feelings. And when you pull that out and watch it without it, there's the emotional experience is just very yeah. different. Yeah. So, yeah, we all love a good story. So the focus of your products is on 
these experiences at the things that we do at amusement parks and other places we'll talk to about in a moment. What have you learned? I know in your presentation yesterday, you went through, I don't know how many products, 40 something. 40. Okay, yes, 40 I went products. through, and there's a lot more than that, but I went through 40 products in our industry. Yeah. From roller coasters and dark rides to flat rides yep. and virtual reality experiences, food, spectacular parades, live shows, 4D theaters, you name it. All options at ex experience options in theme parks exactly. sort of settings. Okay. How can we use this perspective on really focused on the customer experience to help us improve products that we might be doing, whether they're you know, software products or a new construction product or food product, health, whatever the case may be? How can we think more about the customer experience to do a better job creating those? The way I would put it is that the customer experience, by definition, means the customer's on a journey. And the experience model that we talked about yesterday is in similar in many ways to the hero's journey and other models that are deeply rooted and embedded in the human psyche. I don't claim to have invented the experience model. In fact, I wrote a nice long piece on a Substack about it because I was like, I don't claim to own the experience model. No, I, didn't, did I didn't George invent George Lucas when he did Star Wars? No, the hero's journey. And Joseph Campbell didn't invent the hero's journey. He wrote about it. He evangelized it. But I recently wrote a piece talking about the original tabernacle in the wilderness as a product experience, as an experience that actually the way people went, the way the priest went through the tabernacle in the wilderness very much aligns with the experience model and the hero's journey as well. And so these things are just part of who we are as human beings. And so any product should be an experience. And that means that the first thing that you have to do is you have to attract people's attention. Okay. You have to get their attention. Oftentimes that's through product design. It's through some type of, if it's a theme park ride, it's through an icon. If it's a museum experience, it might be through signage or some other element or projection experience. If it's a brand experience, it might be something as simple as a logo. It's very simple. It doesn't have to be fancy, but the bottom line is you have to get people's attention somehow. You have to attract their attention. Then once you attract their attention, you have to build their trust. So how are you going to build your trust? Again, it can be as simple as in a trade show booth, a handshake. Welcome. My name is Chad McAllister. Nice to have you here. But it could also be as complicated as an immersive queue through the Hogwarts castle that looks exactly like it did in the movies. And so if you're a fan of the books and of the movies, you're like, dude, this is it's that, that trust is established. If you're designing a product, if you're developing a product, what are we going to do? What are we going to embed in that product that's going to build trust with our customers? Now, this, of course, is where products and branding and experience and branding interconnect, and they do interconnect. And stories are part of all of this, but how are you going to build that trust? Yeah, because there's, for a lot of products, there's touch points before you get to the actual product, right? It, exactly. It's the website, it's referrals from friends, there's other touch points involved. Last night, the thing that at least I didn't recall from previous times uh, at Disney, it's been quite a bit of time at Disney World for me since I've been there, but in the line, they've added some experiences to the line. I was talking to someone else that this seems to be dominant across the Disney World theme parks, at least now, but as you're waiting, there's things to interact with to get involved in the story as you're waiting in line. So they're starting to build a little bit of anticipation about the actual writing of the right later. We've all seen products fail because they never gained that traction or that trust with the audience, with the customer, with the guest, whoever it might be. 
And so that trust is important. And so once you've done that, once you've got their attention, once you've built your trust, then you have to give them the information they need to move forward in their journey. So what information is important to deliver? How to use the product? Again, we've seen products fail because people do not know how to use them. We've seen experiences fail because people don't know what what's happening next. They don't know where they're going. The experience feels disjointed. So often in a theme park attraction, that step of information is delivered in what we call the pre-show. There's the icon that draws you in. There's the queue where that established, that trust is established. And then there's that pre-show where you get the information you need to move forward in your journey. So as a product development manager, what I challenged people yesterday in the speech, in the presentation was, you know, what information is important to share? And then after you've done that, then people are ready, right? You've got their attention, you've built their trust, you give them that information. Now they're ready to internalize the story. They're ready to internalize the product. We talked about a toothbrush yesterday and it's okay, is it just the act of brushing? Is that the internalize? The internalize in a theme park might actually be the ride itself, hopping on a coaster. We're working on a project right now called the Ozark Mill at the Farms in Ozark, Missouri. And the Ozark Mill is a historic grain mill. It's been there for almost 200 years and it's beautiful and it's right on the Finley River. And the internalize there the moment where there's peak emotion, if you will, where it's like really hits home, isn't anything that we actually manufactured. It's when you step out of the mill onto a platform right on the river and you just see that waterfall coming over the mill pond and the trees and you see the old Leffler water turbine and you see a new chapel they built across the river and the birds chirping and the sun shining. That's the moment when the story hits home and you realize the connection as the Ozark Mountain Daredevils put it to the stubborn stream, right? Um, that powers these mills. And there's great symbolism in the power of that stream and how it transformed communities like Ozark. So that's the internalized moment. So again, as a product development manager, you have that moment where you get their attention, you build their trust, you give them the information you need, you hit them with emotion, they internalize that product. Then, then it's act. What do you want them to do? What do you want that person to do? Cynically, in this industry, people think that's, oh, dude, the exit through retail. You know what I mean? That's all we want them to do is exit through retail. And I can appreciate why there people are think that. There are gift shops at the end there of rides. There are gift shops at the end of rides. And certainly, Disney and Universal and other operators want you to buy something. In fact, at the Ozark Mill that we're working on, there is a general store as you exit the experience. And we do want people to buy things. But it's more than that. What we actually want people to do is become part of the story. And the best example I give of this is when you go on the Hogwarts Forbidden Journey theme park right over there at Universal Studios Islands of Adventure, and you exit through the resale store, yes, they want you to buy a wand or they want you to buy a t-shirt or a jersey. But when you're looking at those Quidditch jerseys and you see a team for Slytherin, a team for Hufflepuff, a team for Gryffindor, and a team for Ravenclaw, what's important is where do I belong? And so it fosters conversation among families, among friends. Okay, which one of you is Slytherin? Which one of you is Gryffindor? Which one of you is Hufflepuff? Which one of you is Ravenclaw? And you talk about the attributes of each of those houses. And so you become part of the story. So again, as a product development manager, what we challenged the members of the PDMA yesterday to do is think about what we want people to do. What do we want them to, what action do we want them to take with our products? How can they become part of the story? Okay, so a really good framework. Do we have all the elements 
of the framework? That's it. Okay, so we're going to attract attention, build trust, give them the information that they need to actually move forward. And we might call that part of the pre-show. Create a some experience in there to let them internalize the product and take more meaning to them. And then be purposeful about the action that we want them to take next. Exactly. Is there an example, maybe something you're working on now or you've done recently to help us illustrate more of that? I like, like the Ozark experience here. But like, like, here another one. Yeah, the example I showed yesterday was the Ozark Mill. But I could give you another one. I just flew back from Singapore where we were working with a property insurance company called FM Global. Now, some people would say that insurance is boring, but it actually is not. It's quite fascinating. And FM Global is one of the world's leaders in property insurance. And they have a very unique story to tell because FM Global doesn't have any actuaries in their insurance company. They have an engineering-based approach. And they've been insuring Disney for, oh, geez, 50 years. They insure Universal Studios. They insure property. That's what they do. But how they work is their engineers show up when you become a customer and they say, okay, we have this insurance product we want to sell you, but let's look at your facility. Let's look at where can we make improvements, engineering-based improvements. And if you make those changes, then FM Global will lower your insurance rate. It's very simple. And how the company got started 200 years ago was Zachariah Allen was operating and owning a mill in Providence, Rhode Island, and he made improvements so it wouldn't burn down. You know, that Ozark Mill I talked about, that burned down three different times in its 200-year history. Lots the, of wood. and Lots of wood. That flower is very Right, flammable. dust explosions, you name it. Yeah, really challenging stuff. And same with, they used to heat these textile mills with barrels full of wood and a flame, which is, it's, of course there were, and you're, you're milling textiles, cotton and wool. It's, yes, of course there's going to be fires. Good potential. Right. Yeah. But he introduced, actually ran hot pipes of water through the whole facility to heat it. So no more open flames. He built his mill with what he called slow burning wood, which is essentially not small strips of wood, but large, big, huge mat timber that's slow burning, doesn't easily catch on fire, other fire protection systems. And then he went to an insurance company and said, hey, look, I just invested in all this cool stuff to keep my mill from burning down. I think you should give me a discount on my insurance. And his insurance company said, no. So he said, fine, I'll go start my own insurance company. And so he banded together with a few other mill owners that also had made those improvements and they founded the factory mutual insurance company, FM Global which it is today. But in Singapore, they have a new Singapore headquarters, the FM Global Center. And the same thing, when you walk inside, the first thing is a two-story LED column that's giving you real-time data visualization of property risk around the world. So you see pulling live data from NOAA streams, current wind risk through typhoons, typhoons and hurricanes, pulling real geospatial information from government agencies, use real seismic activity around the world, pulling real-time data from news feeds, you see how many fires are happening around the world right now. And it gives you a beautiful data visualization of this in this column, if you will, column, column of risk. Then you step upstairs into a cafe, grab a cup of coffee. That's the, let's have I, a cup I of coffee. I think those visuals, right? Yeah. Because they're pulling in all the information. That's the attract, right? Yeah, and I think that conveys trust as well, right? They trust as you well. Know, they're but, but, monitoring the information, yeah. doing their job. They're, right. And when you grab that cup of coffee and have that conversation with somebody, you're looking at that LED column, a column of risk. And so having those conversations, that trust is established. Okay. Then you go into a theater and the theater is a, you know, a presentation about FM Global. It's custom built, three screens, actually wind effects. And we 
added a cool, actually, it's the same speaker that's in the Indiana Jones ride out at Disneyland where that shakes, shakes it. So we shake the theater during the earthquake section. And so that's where we really talk about the information you need to move forward in the journey. And then you go to a series of nine labs. There's the fire pump lab, the riser lab, the sprinkler lab, where you actually get to see sprinklers work. You go to the natural hazard lab and fire a two by four through a wall. And there's a flood table where you can actually design a factory to withstand floods. There's a warehouse lab, ignitable liquids lab, an electrical lab. And you go to all these labs. That's where you internalize the message. And then finally, you step into a nice boardroom, a nice little huddle space, a nice conference room. And you have conversations about, okay, how can my property lower its risk? How can I improve mitigation? What technology can I install? What can I do? And that's what they want their clients to do is make those improvements to lower their risk. So that's an example from a brand experience that just opened last week in Singapore, the FM Global Center, and how that experience model applies to that experience. Wow. Okay. And so in this case, did that exist or were you assessing? Oh, it was brand new. It's a brand new facility. Yeah, it's a brand new facility. Okay. Uh, Custom built. Yeah. I think a key takeaway for me is understanding that uh, the experience a customer has with the product is taking place long before they actually interact with the product themselves. There's some reason that they are wanting to go buy this product in the first place. I think so. Yesterday, Hershey presented that they are the Outstanding Corporate Innovator Award winner for this year. So a couple Their of dark apply. chocolate thin Reese's were really good. I'm <laughs> hoping to scam one on my way out. I'm hoping that there's some chocolate still sitting around somewhere. It was one of the advantages of an in-person conference because they had buckets and buckets of oh, chocolate with them. So I grabbed a handful and put it in my bag. And they talk about their, I asked one of the executives afterwards, their key metric is Crave, right? How do they assess how they're doing? What are the customers really want? And I said, where did you come up with the metric for Crave? People are having a craving for a Reese's peanut butter cup or the dark chocolate, whatever the varieties are. And that was just listening to the language that customers use and recognizing that they're making the decision on a craving they have and they want something that is a little bit indulgent and different. I'm craving that Reese's peanut butter cup. And there's, I think, always a connection to the larger experience Right. If we're just focused as maybe food engineers, let's make the best combination of chocolate and peanut butter we can. There's more going on in that customer's journey to decide to buy that product or not. I, I love chocolate. I'm so guilty. Chocolate and peanut butter is hard to go wrong. That was my, I admit, my growing up go-to was often Reese's peanut butter cups. They are good. And I did pick up a few to take home. Yeah. <laughs> As you should. What is new in this area of of experience design that you're looking into? There's always trends on the experience side. As you look at new coaster technology, new virtual reality technology, augmented reality, as you look at RFID, and there's a really cool new product that was innovated for Disney actually here, where the stormtroopers have a very unique voice. They all sound exactly alike. So if you're walking around Galaxy's Edge, how do you get the stormtroopers to all talk the same? Because they're real people behind them and all of us have different voices. And, and again, I had nothing to do with this, just so you know, but it's a very cool technology where actually there's sensors in the gloves the stormtroopers use. And however they use their fingers, like how they move their fingers and their hands, the stormtrooper will make comments. So you can actually speak and customize based on hand motions and then the voice will come out and it always sounds exactly. These aren't the drones you're looking for. Move along. So that's a pretty cool technology. All, there's, there's lots of trends that way. From my perspective on designing experiences, one of the things that's really earth-shattering, and it really hit in June of 2022, it's 
this is really new and really fundamentally transforming how we work and being very disruptive. And there are people that are very angry about it. And there are people that are loving it and embracing it is artificial intelligent design tools. And that includes both writing tools like Jasper and design tools like Midjourney and Dolly 2. Tell us what those do. Essentially, and again, I don't claim to be an expert on artificial intelligent design, but essentially... But you're using the tools. We're using the tools. But essentially how it was born is the amazing engineers out in Silicon Valley were for ways to describe photos because it's so much easier when you're managing literally millions of photographs that are uploaded every minute, every second. If an algorithm, if an artificial intelligent design tool can describe that photo. So you upload a photo to your iCloud and then an Apple algorithm, which this doesn't happen yet, but this is the goal. An Apple algorithm or Google algorithm would say, oh, this is a picture of two men sitting in a hotel ballroom having a conversation, a podcast. As we happen to be doing. As we're happy to do right now. But it would literally, if you took a picture of us doing this and we uploaded it. It would figure that out. It would figure that out. So I don't have to go in and write Chad and I at the hotel, Hilton Hotel, Bonnet Creek, Orlando, having a, having a podcast. It would just know that and it would describe it. And so they were working on software that would describe photographs. And then they realized, huh, if we actually have software that can describe photographs, why can't we just type in a prompt and say, two men having a podcast in a hotel ballroom, and it'll generate an image. And then they got thinking and said, well, why don't we add and learn from all the different artistic styles out there? Painting, impressionism. Cubism, I want a watercolor, abstract, watercolor, okay. or even specific artists like Craig Mullins or Monet or style. Manet or, or how about Unreal Engine number five or video game or photorealism or hyperrealism. And June, and I, these have been around for, I think, not very long. I don't know when it actually first hit, but I first learned about it in June and <clears throat> immediately signed up for it and got the waiting list on Dolly 2 and then finally got in Dolly 2, but started using it. And it's pretty earth shattering because I'm a writer, but guess what? Now I'm a designer because all I have to do is write a prompt and can generate anything I want. And we've decided as a company to fully embrace artificial intelligent design tools. And there are illustrators in the industry who are extremely threatened buy this. They feel like it's going to take their job away. And I understand that. I do. My daughter's, who Zoe is a designer and illustrator, but she has decided to fully embrace artificial intelligent design. But there are people that, and we talked about this in the presentation yesterday to the PDMA, there are people who are violently, I use that word loosely, but they are angrily opposed to this. I've shared our approach to AI design with a few people, and I've had an architect or two, an illustrator or two, get physically upset angry. Why are you doing this? This is, there's famous artists who have called it an insult to humanity and the end of the world. I don't share those, um, those predictions. Again, I'm going to rely on my daughter who's embraced this. She is a professional artist, a designer, an illustrator. And the, what she loves about it is three or four things. First, she loves how much faster she can work. Second, it doesn't fundamentally change how she works. That's the thing in a professional illustrator with the design tools we have right now. No one, no, no one really just draws everything by hand anymore. They mash up. I remember once Zoe 
went and did a, a shadowing with a professional illustrator out in Los Angeles for a day. And this artist is amazing. His name is Nathaniel West, and he has done concept art for films like Interstellar and Inception. He's done amazing illustrations and renderings for theme park attractions all over the world. He's incredibly talented. And Zoe spent, when she was a junior in college at Auburn, spent a day with him. And this was 2016, I think, 2017. And I picked her up at the end of her day with Nathaniel. And I said, what'd you think? And she looked at me and she said, I had no idea you could cheat so much. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, I always thought you had to draw the boulder by hand. No, you just go grab a picture of a boulder, drop it in and paint over it. I always thought you had to draw people by hand. No, you just go grab a picture of a person that you like in the right pose and the right angle, you drop it in and you paint over it. Now, you need to make sure that you're pulling that from public domain sources and you need to make sure that you're doing it in the right, right way. But yeah, you cheat. And I was like, ah, yeah, I mean, I knew that, but I hadn't really thought about it and how to change her job. And the artificial intelligent design tools are essentially doing what human beings were doing it. They're just doing it faster. So in that sense, it really hasn't changed anything. But what's more powerful for Zoe is you know, she says that, and it's true, that artificial intelligent design tools, the software is learning from human beings. The software will go look at every single piece of artwork that Manet ever painted or Craig Mullins ever painted or Bansky ever painted and learn. And that's true. But Zoe says that what she loves about it is that she's actually learning from AI. So the AI is making her a better artist because she'll look at what the AI is doing and going, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I, yeah, I, sh I should add this coloring or this shading or this here. She's actually learning from the AI, I think, as much as the AI is learning essentially from her. So that's pretty cool. And the other thing that I'm very excited about with AI is we did a project last week in Abu Dhabi. And typically, it takes one day to do a concept rendering. We did 10 renderings. When I say we, Zoe, right? Zoe did 10 renderings in one day. So it went from one rendering yeah, order of magnitude to 10. Now, they weren't as specific as the one. They weren't as detailed. They were more conceptual. But what was cool about it is the client was okay with that because we're fully transparent with our clients. When we use AI design, and I think this is very, very important to be fully transparent with your clients about how you're delivering the work. So we told them we're going to deliver this work with AI design, and that's why we can do it. And so that's pretty exciting and pretty cool. But they knew that it was more conceptual, and it had to be, because the enemy of AI is specificity. Like, again, I can go on AI and describe two men with gray hair sitting in a hotel, lot, a hotel ballroom having a podcast, but it's not going to get the carpet pattern right. It's not going to get the color on the wall. It's not going to get the lighting exactly right. And the chandelier we have hanging down here. The enemy of AI is specificity. If you want specificity, you really have to do that by hand. At least now you do. And the challenge is that where our industry has been going for the last decade, where our industry has been going is give me photorealistic renderings in the concept phase. I want to see exactly what it's going to look like in the concept phase. Our frustration it's is very like, early still. Exactly. Our frustration is, yeah, but it's the conceptual phase. We don't need to decide all the right. details yet. We're just trying to get the mood right. We're trying to get the feeling right. We're trying to get the emotion right. And you were able to give them 10 versions 
that now they can say, oh, I really like that element, and exactly. I like this element from the other one. Exactly. Let's work on putting these three together. It brings back the concept phase. It brings back the, you know what, we don't have to have everything 100% photo real in the concept phase. We can keep it loose. We can keep it foggy a little bit, and that's okay. And they're happy. The client's happier now because to do one photorealistic rendering, you can spend easily just $10,000 to do one photorealistic rendering. Five, maybe you do it four. There's different levels of quality mm-hmm. of photorealism, sure. right? You have to appreciate. If you want a really high-end photorealistic rendering, you can easily spend three, five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000. Someone has to build that model. Right. You have to build a model. It's just, yeah, it's just, right. But with AI design, hey, for the same amount of money, Instead of one rendering that's photoreal, I can give you 10, 15 renderings that are loose, but really give you an idea of what the concept is and how this is going to look and feel. And the clients like that, I think. At least that's the experience we had last week. And again, keep in mind, this is so new. But what's exciting about it is you're in the product development management industry. And the reality is your stakeholders, your clients, right? They don't always know what they want. Sure. And with AI design... You can say, oh, well, I'll take this example. And this is an example I shared yesterday. I want a Polynesian-themed restaurant with a big tree in the middle. Okay, this is what it looks like with AI design. I can show you that in a few minutes, what it's going to look like. No, that's not exactly right. I want it to be more of a little conda, African feel. Okay, great. Let's do that. Yeah, that's cool, but I was thinking more colorful flowers. Okay, let me add that to the prompt. And you can boom, 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 and show that really quickly in a brainstorming session and, and explore more ideas. Right. Even with character design, you can explore more ideas so quickly. That's what we want to do with, with prototyping, right? We, I like starting out with very low-fidelity mock-ups that look like they're meant to be changed, right? We're trying to just engage the customer and get their perspective and ideas. We always tell, when I try to make an argument against photoreal in the concept phase, what I like to tell the client is I'm like, listen, I'm doing you a favor because if we give you photoreal and then a year from now, for very valid reasons, we make changes along the way, And then your CEO walks in and says, this doesn't look like what I approved a year ago. You know what I mean? I said, if you have to deliver photo reel in the concept phase, you're not going to have the flexibility you need moving forward through design development and product development to make the right decisions because you're worried about that original concept, photo reel concept rendering you showed a year ago. And oh no, the CEO is going to want to see exactly what it looked like and what he approved. So keep it loose. Keep it chill. Keep it on Make it story. a learning tool. Yeah, make it a learning continuing tool. Continuing to keep learn the tools. process. So that's what I'm excited about, yeah. anyway. Yeah, but new things to try out, right? Yeah, new things to try out. Maybe at some point, those might help us with user interfaces for tools and packaging design yeah. for physical tools. Yeah. All kinds of things. Are and again, if you're like me, and the thing is, you don't have to be an expert in AI design, but make sure someone on your team is. Yeah, it's coming, right? My it's coming. Start figuring this trend out. It's coming with a vengeance. Very good. Appreciate all the information and that model to help us think about that customer experience and the journey. And that our product is in some way a journey with on a journey with that customer's journey. And yeah. how do the two build together? How can people find out more about the work you're doing? You can always visit us online at creativeprinciples.com. Okay. Also, we're on Instagram, YouTube. We actually have a new YouTube show out called Park Pals that our summer interns put together and they're keeping it doing it through their college years. And so we love it. It's They try to post weekly, not always, but they try to post weekly. And uh, certainly you can get us on Facebook, 
And, uh, or you can, on our website, there's a, actually a phone number on our website if you want to call us. Wow. Can you talk I to know. a person or is an AI person? It's, you'll get a, a, a receptionist. <laughs> yes. A mechanism. Uh, to talk a, to a, yes. A computerized voice that will then direct you to, to me or Zoe or another one of our Someone to talk with. team. Yeah. Excellent. Very good. Thank you once again for the information. Appreciate the thinking about this experience, Jeff, and we're in the heart of a place to think more about the customer experience as well, being here in theme park capital of the world. Thank you, Chad. And listeners, once again, if you want a written summary of everything we discussed and that one-page action guide with key takeaways, we'll put the model in there that Jeff shared as well. Please go to productmasterynow.com slash 423. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.